All right, Revelation chapter 6. Follow along with me as I read. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beast of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars fell and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we humbly ask that your spirit would be the one who uh, speaks to us, teaches us, leads us through this this astounding vision, Lord, that you give uh, to John and, and, and now give to us. Father, the Old Testament prophets called it the great day of your wrath. And we see, Lord, it's beginning to unfold. So um, give us eyes to see it again, as I prayed earlier, Lord, uh, hearts to receive the message you would have for us. And we pray that in Jesus name. Amen. And so it begins. That's what King Theoden said, right? Before the battle, that great battle there at Helm's Deep. We've spent two or three weeks actually looking at this. The center of the universe, the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4. 
and heard all of the creatures just giving God the Creator worth and and praise and worship. Then in chapter 5, as we saw on Resurrection Sunday and then again last week, we see the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. We see this one who is a lion and a lamb standing there at the throne of God. And he goes and he takes this scroll, this 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 redemptive plan of God, the purposes of God, if you will, really what unfolds in the rest of Revelation. We see him go and take that scroll out of the right hand of the Father. And then here in chapter 6, he begins to unseal this scroll. He begins to open it up for us to see. I went back and I was reading through some of my sermon notes from the very first sermon that we preached out of the book of Revelation back in January. And and here's what I said. What ultimately motivated me to lead us into Revelation was what it says in chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written, for the time is near. As we get into Revelation 6 and what follows, it's real important that we remember, as I said back in week 1, that the book of Revelation is not given to confuse us or divide us. It is not given to provide as fodder for end-time debates um, or book series and movie deals. That's not why Revelation was given to us. The purpose of Revelation is not to spur our imagination about wild interpretations, but to spur our faithfulness and our obedience. It's to open our eyes to spiritual realities. It's to bless us, comfort us, encourage us, to be faithful and to persevere, to endure to the end, okay? And so the whole theme of Revelation is, is this throne room, this, this place where we see the glory of Jesus. That's the goal of Revelation is the glory of Jesus, right? It should be the goal of our lives. So as we get into Revelation chapter 6 and what follows, there's, there's several approaches that could be taken. And I'm going to just summarize a couple of them, and we'll look at more of them later on. One of them is what we'd call a futurist approach, okay? The futurist approach says that everything that John saw was in the future, the future, the future for him and that church, those churches that he read it to, and it's in the future for us, okay? These are all things that are yet to happen. Now, I don't hold to that view, and you can, you know, you can work your way through Revelation and hold to that view as well. My biggest issue with that view is if it's all in the future, what did it mean to John and to those, re- those who heard him read this letter, those who read this then, those seven churches? What did it mean to them? One of the key components of good, solid biblical reading and learning and understanding and exegesis is to, what did it mean to those who first heard it? What did it mean to them? What was he saying to them? And how can we make that our message today? So there's that futurist position. Now, understand, and I, we will see this too, there is coming a terrible tribulation like this world has never seen. Okay? We will, we will see that. But I'm just not so sure that a completely futurist position doesn't miss the original point of the letter. Those, those believers were suffering under the emperors of Rome. They were suffering for their faith. They were being persecuted. They were dying because they would not worship the emperor. 
So they needed to hear a, a word that says, God's in control now. And what you see and are experiencing now has purposes behind it, good purposes behind it that come from the throne room of God. So we'll see that. There's another way to see it, which sees it both, as, as I mentioned a minute ago, even in my prayer, here now, but not yet. Not here now, but, but not yet. And there's this theme that we see unfolding, especially in these first four seals that are broken in Revelation chapter 6. There's this theme of wrath and judgment and suffering that we see happening again and again and again over redemptive history, right? I mean, it's just a pattern of what we see unfolding in human history. And there is coming a time where it will get worse, all right? We will see that. It is going to get worse. But as we see this redemptive history unfolding, there are, just as we'll see in these four seals, patterns, patterns of deception, Patterns of war, patterns of the consequences of those wars, as in famine and hurt and death and pestilence. We're going to see those things unfolding. So until then, you know, until we see the full completion of this that Jesus talks about, and we're going to read Jesus' words in Matthew 24 in just a minute, until then, we're promised that the gospel is going to continue to grow. The kingdom is going to continue to expand. Jesus will say later on in Matthew 24, the gospel of this kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. Okay? Until it comes, there have been and will continue to be rulers who rise and fall, rulers who deceive, rulers who covet, rulers who lie, Rulers who will fight and lead their nations and their followers to fight. They're going to rail against God and his people. It has been going on since the cross. And it will continue to go on until Jesus returns again. And that's, that's the pattern that we see. But it's not over yet. Okay? We're going to see next week. And I'm dividing this into two weeks. Okay? So we're going to look at the first four seals today down through verse 8. And I love what we see there in, in, in the middle of this. When he opened the fifth seal, we see under the altar the souls of those who have been slain. They're crying out for God to avenge their death. They're crying out for God to judge the, what it's called the, the people of this earth, okay? Uh, which are those who are not in the kingdom. And they're given a white robe and they're told to just rest a little longer. And we can be encouraged by how we see this unfolding, but we need to be awake to the reality that the message they got is a message for us. The message of those martyrs is not yet, the number of those martyrs is not yet full. More will be killed for the faith. So it's not over yet. As bad as it is now, it's going to get worse. Now, there's various Old Testament passages that help us understand, I believe. One of the problems that I've come across as I've been reading a lot of commentary, we really make this way more complicated than I think it needs to be. Okay? I really, I believe that's part of the issue with it. Uh, I'm pretty simple-minded, and I like to, you know, I like, I like kiss. Okay? Keep it simple, stupid. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm gonna look at Revelation that way for the most part, okay? Um, 
But there's some vivid Old Testament passages and images that help us understand what it is that we're seeing here. Zechariah, for instance, Zechariah 3, talks about four chariots and horses, horses of different colors. He said, I lifted my eyes in Zechariah 6, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were like mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Ezekiel has this same thing of these recurring judgments, okay? Judgments that seem to be separate but yet go together. Ezekiel said in chapter 14, Thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off to cut off it from man and beast. Turn to Matthew 24. I think this helps us, should help us, as much as anything or more than anything to to make to make sense of and to understand what it is that that's being revealed to us in Revelation. This is called the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus with his disciples um, there toward the end of his life. In Matthew chapter 24, I just want to read a little bit of it, okay? So follow along with me. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to a point, came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them. And, and Mark, by the way, says they were looking at the stones. They're looking at just the massive beauty of the structure. But Jesus answered them. You see all these? Do you not? Truly, truly, I say to you. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, excuse me, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And we'll read more of Matthew 24 as, our work, as we work our way through this. So there's this picture. There's birth pains. What is that? Well, we're not there yet. We're not. There's an ultimate end coming. There's an ultimate tribulation coming. And until then, the gospel is going to go out through all the world. The people of God are going to be persecuted. There'll be tribulation. There'll be difficulty. And then the end will come. And what this passage shows us, okay, and I, I think this is in your sermon notes. I don't remember. I didn't go back and read them this morning. What this passage shows us is that Christ is ruling over every one of these events. They are not happening by accident. It is not blind chance, blind fate. 
the horses in Revelation 6, okay, we call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you want to call, if you want to refer to it that way. Billy Graham's book said approaching hoofbeats. These, these horses, these first seals show us that the natural and political disasters of our world are brought about by the sovereign work of God and his saving love and his judging wrath are on display equally clearly in this okay they're both there and what seems to be chaotic and destructive is absolutely not chaotic and destructive by chance all right it's not by chance there's there's something going on here and let me reiterate let me just touch on for a second this what i mentioned a minute ago this this idea in scripture that things are are now but not yet and that has to do with the wrath of god as well okay one of the things that we as God's people need to do is embrace his wrath. We want to we we shy away from that. But the gospel has two sides to it, okay? One is the side of grace and the other is the side of God's judgment upon those who refuse that grace. So there's two sides of one coin there. And we need to embrace that wrath because it shows us the whole picture of the beauty of God's glory, of, of who he is. And as we see that unfolding, Paul told us in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Later on in chapter 1, he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He says this three times in the series of about eight verses. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not what ought not to be done then in Revel, then in Romans 5 because of your hard impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed do you see that God's wrath is being poured out now but God's wrath will be poured out it's not yet but yet it is today one writer said this these seals that we see today Show us the self-defeating character of sin. Think about that. The self-defeating character of sin. He said when the spirit of self-aggrandizement and conquest is abroad, all God needs to do is let the events take their course and sinners will be inevitably punished. That's what it means to God to, for God to give us up to those choices that we make. There is a day of reckoning coming. We should be hearing the hoofbeats, okay? We should be hearing the hoofbeats. I don't even know what the reference to the quote was, but Stephen King, I saw this week, said, if you hear hoofbeats, it's not zebras, okay? Well, in the book of Revelation, if you hear the hoofbeats, it's not zebras, okay? That great day is coming. And there seems to be a progression, okay? These first four seals are connected. One follows another and yet they all seem to run together in a sense, okay? And what we see poured out here is not just the wrath of God against his enemies, but it's the love of God for his people. Oh, it's beautiful to see it. His desire to protect us from persecution, even as he avenges those who bring it about. It's 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 amazing thing to see. So let's look at the first seal. All right? First two verses of Revelation 6. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice of thunder, Come. 
Man, that must have been loud. It must have just literally shook heaven. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So what in the world is this? What is it that we see unfolding here in this first rider? Some have said that this is Christ himself. And and that that understanding that interpretation of what we see here in the first of chapter six comes from later on in chapter 19 of Revelation. I'll just read it. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head on his head are many diadems or many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some say that this white horse rider that we see here in Revelation chapter 6 is the same one that we see in Revelation chapter 19. I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think the only thing those two riders have in common is a white horse. That's it. I don't think there's anything else in common there. Some say that this is a picture of the advancement of the gospel. Well, the gospel will advance. But I don't think that's what this particular horse here means, what this rider here means. I mean, think about it for just a second. Let me, let me just do a real, like, four-point comparison, okay? The first rider here in chapter 6 is not faithful and true. The rider in Revelation 19 is called faithful and true. This one comes, it says, only to conquer. That's his purpose. Secondly, it is the lamb there in the throne room of God who is unsealing the scroll, right? We saw that. And I don't, I don't think it makes any sense that the lamb would unseal the scroll and then jump on the horse and there will not be any angel commanding Jesus to do anything. Okay? No creature will command Jesus to come. All right, so I don't I don't think that's that. Third, Jesus warned. I just read it in Matthew 24. Jesus warned us that as these birth pains come before the end, there will be deceivers. Paul said Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, right? And Jesus says, "Don't be led astray. Many will come saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray." And then fourthly, I just think these four riders they, they go together. They, they run together. Deception leads to conquest and war. And conquest and war leads to famine. And famine leads to, to, to death and pestilence and all of this. They all go together. So I believe this is a grouping that we need to, to recognize here. Now, D.A. Carson and, and others say that this first rider is a picture of or symbolic of military conquest, okay? Like nation fighting against nation. My particular issue with that is this rider has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. So I think there's a symbol there of conquest, but not necessarily of of war. But even having said that, because Carson also says that if this first rider is military conquest like nation against nation, then this second rider where he's just unleashed to slaughter, 
is like civil war. Man against man. Nation fighting against itself. And there's, I see that. There's some validity there. I don't, you know, I can, I can understand that as well. But I believe what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and what we see throughout the rest of the book with the deceiver that is to come, this is just a, a precursor to the deception that's coming. So this first rider is deception. The second rider, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. That word for slay there is, is literally to slaughter or it's used to butcher. This sword is huge and it is taking a huge toll. And war, whether it's nation against nation or nation against itself, is breaking out. I was reading this week and I, I didn't verify it. This particular website, this particular author I was reading said that over the years since Jesus' 2,000 years ago, since his first advent, there's been a major war every year except for two. You know, history would probably prove that out. Just think about it for a second. Go back as far as Genghis Khan. He conquered over a quarter of the known earth mass at the time. There's never been anyone like that. Now, in the process, although it's hard to tell that far back, the estimates are that 40 million people lost their lives over Genghis Khan's time. 30 million were killed in World War I. 75 million in World War II. Fast forward 30 years. Paul Pot and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, under their hand, Almost two million Cambodians died of starvation and execution and disease and work camps. Fast forward back to 1994. In just a little over three months, a hundred days, 800,000 people were killed in Rwanda by Hutu extremists. Just in three months. Over 600,000 people have been killed in Syria in that civil war over the last six years. And even as we speak, even as, as we meet here, the military in Myanmar is killing the citizens of that country. So this, this rider with his great sword and his red horse picturing that blood, that slaughter and that butchering is taking place. And the Old Testament prophet Isaiah shows us that God's judgment against sinful men is war. One of the means of his judgment is that, Isaiah 34. The Lord is angry with all the nations. His wrath is upon their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will, stand, will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked in their blood. We are, humanity, a people of war. Omar Bradley, at the end of World War II in 1948, gave an address it was an Armistice Day address in Boston. This is what General Bradley said. With the monstrous weapons man already has, humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by its moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has clearly outstripped our capacity to control it. We have many men of science, Bradley said, too few men of God. We have grasped the mystery of the atom, and we've rejected the Sermon on the Mount. 
Man is stumbling blindly through a spiritual darkness while toying with the precarious secrets of life and death. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace. More about killing, General Bradley said, than we do about living. The second rider is unleashed. And with him comes this great sword and the slaughter. Oh, yeah, I know. One day, Isaiah says, they will beat their swords into plowshares. One day, he says, their spears into pruning hooks. One day, nation will not lift up the sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. But that is not yet. And it will get worse. It is not the end yet. And I believe ultimately that this second horseman points to this final ruler that we'll see later on in Revelation who begins his conquest through deception. He begins it through intrigue and false diplomacy and all that. And he's going to end it with warfare and he's going to end it with a big sword. I think it points to that. Jesus said, you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed for this must take place. And then the end will come. The third seal. Verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Okay, so, so these are those balance scales. Like the scales of justice you see, you know, sometimes pictured. So he had in his hand a, a pair of scales. Verse 6. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. So we don't know where it came from. Maybe it came straight from the throne. I'm not sure. But this voice said, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. So here's what any casual student of warfare or history will see. That when armies go plodding through a cornfield, it doesn't do well. Right? When armies go ravaging through the countryside and the crops are torn up. And nothing can be plowed or planted or harvested. Without farms, people don't eat. Okay? It may be on a bumper sticker, but it's true. And what we see unfolding here is famine. What we see unfolding here from this black horse and its rider holding these scales represents famine. Because what's happening here is food is being weighed out. Okay? It seems all right if you have a little silver or a little gold or something else of value, you put that up there. And it's no longer buy what you want, it's buy what you can. And it's literally being weighed out. And it's a time of great inflation. Because these prices that are given to us, according to the commentators, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius is what this voice says. And a quart of wheat... According to Cicero, it's what it took to feed one man for one day. And, and, and this denarius that he's earning is one day's wage. So a laborer goes out and works all day and gets just enough to feed himself, not his family, just himself for one day's work. Or if he's poor, as, as, as is the case here, he can buy this other grain, this this not wheat, but this barley, which I've read is low in nutrients. It was normally fed to the animals. He can buy three quarts of that for the same amount. So he can stretch it out 
with his family. But one writer said that these inflation prices are 10 to 15 times normal prices. So the armies ravaged through the fields. The crops don't grow. There's famine. There's inflation. It sounds like history, doesn't it? It sounds like what's going on. I mean, in Mozambique, I'm talking about today. In Mozambique, in Nigeria, in South Sudan, in Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Yemen, civil war and civil strife have brought about famine and starvation. According to the UN, I was reading early this morning, in the past year, food prices in Syria, just in the past year, have increased 250% from that war in that war-torn country. It'll only get worse. And then the end will come. But this is not as bad as it could be. The, the voice from heaven, the voice that they hear says, do not harm the oil and the wine. What in the world is that? And, and there's all kinds of opinions on this, but I think it indicates that it's not as bad as it could be. Now, some say, and it, it, it's valid to say this, that the oil and the wine were those things that were available to those who were more wealthy. And even in this time of famine, if you've got the money, you can get by. But the poor can't. And some commentators go to great lengths to talk about how the application of this is how we who have should be mindful of those who, who don't have. That's valid. I just don't think that's the main point here. Not in this particular passage. Others say this refers to the, to the depth of the root system of olive trees and of vineyards. And that an army coming through and ravaging the top of the ground doesn't get to the bottom of the ground. I was thinking about that this week. I remember when we were in Afghanistan visiting one of our families serving there. And we were told that if you look out on the countryside and see it just looked barren, it looked desert. In places it looked black. And they said that was where the Taliban had actually poured oil and other chemicals into the ground. Not just to kill the crops, but to see that nothing else would grow. So here we have this picture that the famine is bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. That's the third writer. Then the fourth one in verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. To kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast on the earth. Now, this horse's color, is, it's pale. The word in the Greek is chloros, like chlorophene or chlorophyll. It's, it's just a green, sickly green color. It's, it, it's death and decay is pictured in this horse. And the rider's name is death. And like battalions in wartime, the artillery, the infantry, and the cavalry is being followed by the grave diggers. And Hades, the place of the dead, is following behind him. It doesn't say whether they're riding or walking. It doesn't matter. Where this rider goes, death follows. And it's following along. Sword is taking its toll. Famine and starvation. These graves are full of empty bellies. Plague and pestilence, disease that comes with famine, that comes with impoverishment. We, we know a whole lot more about this now than we did a couple of years ago. 
wild beast. One writer said, we truly do not comprehend how much God restrains animals and birds from attacking the human race. But imagine if that restraint were removed. So I don't know the connection necessarily between the beast and the pestilence. Isaiah talks about this a lot. Here's what I understand, that as bad as it is, it's just the beginning of birth pains. It's going to get worse. Every generation, every generation has experienced war, famine, and death to some degree, okay? We've been inoculated, well, not inoculated, we've been in some ways insulated from it here in America, okay? We have been. Our own civil war was, was a slaughter. But here in our nation, on our land, we've, we've pretty much been, we haven't experienced what most of the world has. The death coal, 25%, it says, he's given authority over a fourth of the earth. Think about that. All right? I was reading this week that with that death toll that I mentioned earlier it, during World War II, and given the world population, that, that totaled up to about 2.5%. Ten times that is what we see in this. It's horror like hasn't been seen. Now, what does all this mean? Okay? We see what it says. Then in your outline there, I have the meaning, okay? And here's, here's a couple things. That, these aren't really points of application, but they help us put all this together. The first one is this. The Lamb initiates and controls everything we see unfolding here, okay? Christ rules over the events of this world, even if it appears chaotic, even if it appears to be blind fate. Yes, these four horsemen and what they carry out are the result of sin, but this is all coming from the throne. This is all coming according to what God has determined. Who unseals the scrolls so that all this can happen? The Lamb does. Who calls out and commands or invites these horses to run? The creature there at the throne of God. Who gives the crown to that first rider? The Lamb. It was given to him, it says. Who gives that second rider permission to make war or to take peace away? He's given that permission. He doesn't take it. This fourth rider is given authority, as hard as, it is, hard as it is for us to comprehend this. He's given authority to kill a quarter of the earth's population. But all of this is given. All of this is granted. All of this comes not from the hands of these riders on the horse, but from the throne. Second thing to recognize is that these judgments are, in one sense, as I've said, progressive, but they're parallel. They kind of go together. And again, I've said it probably half a dozen times. It's, it's a pattern of already, but not yet. And we will see this escalating. But the end is not yet. The end will come. And there's a series here. Here, with this, here what we see with the seals. There's four of them that we see today. Then we'll see two more. And then there's an interlude. There's kind of a break there for a chapter or so. And then we see the seventh seal. And that seventh seal leads in then to what follows in seven trumpets. And those, those seven trumpets are the same breakdown. Four are together. And then we see two together. And then there's an interlude. And then that seventh trumpet sounds... And we see these seven bowls of wrath being poured out, okay? 
So there's, there's a pattern to this. We're going to see that unfold. And these judgments just, just are a picture for us of the brokenness of this world, but of the purposefulness of God in all that we see taking place. Okay? Third thing. Just what Joseph heard in Genesis chapter 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God intends it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, Joseph told his family. And there is throughout these judgments a dual purpose. A dual purpose. What we see unfolding is the opposition of the lamb against those who oppose him. And the refinement by the Lamb of His people. Judgment and refinement. Wrath and cleansing, okay? It's, it, it goes hand in hand. The faithful are being purified, while the unfaithful and the rebellious are being judged. And we see this pattern repeating itself over and over. So... How do we apply this? What do we what do we take from these four horsemen of the apocalypse? Okay. First one's this. Just let's just chill out, church. Let's just rest in the sovereignty of Christ and his good purposes. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 14. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord Almighty, Almighty has purposed. Who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? God's purposes are being done. Okay? And, and I say this again. The purpose of Revelation, and I believe the purpose that John gives these this picture of these seals being broken. He gave it to those little struggling churches there in Central Asia. And he gives it to those of us here. The purpose is not to spur our imagination about wild interpretations. What in the world could this possibly mean? It's to, it's to encourage us. It's to give us comfort. It's to give us a spiritual vision of a spiritual reality. To, to encourage us to be faithful and persevere. Okay? Secondly, let me just take this big picture of the, what the writer called the, the natural result of sin and let's put it in our heart for just a second. What we see happening on the world stage is what happens in the human heart. Okay? James put it this way. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. We covet something or someone. We deceive ourselves and others to get it. We fight and destroy to get it. And once we get it, we're not satisfied. And we want more. Or we want something else. And soon that very thing that we coveted and fought for and lied for and did whatever we needed to do to get us turns on us and consumes us. And all of this is God's judgment. Letting us have the results of what we choose. Praise God for grace. Amen. Praise God that he steps in and takes the gravity of our foolish, sinful decisions and turns it. And that brings me to this next point. Flee the wrath to come. 
it's, it's going to be worse than we can imagine. Don't be like those people that Jesus talks about at the end of Matthew 24. You know the ones I'm talking about? It's the same ones that were there in the day of Noah. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware that the flood came and swept them all away, so will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Yes, there are birth pains. Yes, there are, for those who have the spiritual vision and insight to see it, indicators, okay, that we're moving toward that end. But we don't know when. And we'll see later on in Revelation that when that when comes, it's too late to repent. It's going to be too late. And even as we saw in the end of chapter 6, the generals and the kings and the powerful and the slaves and the free, the rich and the poor, are looking for caves to hide in and praying for the mountains to fall on them, to flee from the wrath of the Lamb. Don't wait. This Lamb with a lion-like fierceness who is judging, died for you. He shed His blood for you. He took the wrath that this pictures upon Himself so that you don't have to come to Him. And then finally for us as believers, just hold on to Jesus, church. Just, let's just hold on to Him. Hold on to Him because He is holding on to us. And serve Him faithfully because He's promised to see us through this. And all the while, He's expanding His gospel. Uh, turn over to Let me just close by reading this to you from 1 Peter. I opened with it. I want us to close with it. Don't be surprised, Peter writes. Don't be surprised. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, it's at hand. We're, we're in these last days. And, and we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We're to be holy. We're to be other-oriented, serving, showing hospitality. We're to use the gifts that he's given us. And we're not to be surprised, he says, at the fiery trial when it comes. Because it's coming to judge. And it also, he says in verse 12, it comes to test you. And so we rejoice in that. Rejoice, he says in verse 13, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The Lamb who is on the throne, unsealing the scrolls and pouring out this wrath, is the Lamb who got there via the cross. And we will get to that place of glory. We will get to that glorious place he has prepared for us. Only as we take up our cross and follow Him. And in the meantime, as bad as it is, it's going to get worse. That's not much of a message, is it? I mean, I don't want you going away from here thinking that your best life is now. Alright? You haven't heard that, have you? And this it's a hard message. But it's a glorious message. It's a glorious message, church. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who has never trusted in Christ, maybe, I don't know, God, maybe it's a young person, maybe it's a student, maybe it's somebody else that's a lot older than that, just thinking, oh, I got time. I got time. I'm going to live my life, and when, you know, when I see the end coming, then I'll, I'll do this religion stuff. Father, I pray that you would impress deeply upon every single heart, those that are yours and those that aren't, that none of our days are promised to us. We have this minute and this breath because you've given it to us. And Lord, as it was in the days of Noah, just going on with life and not even knowing that the doors are about to close and the flood is about to sweep away. Father, I pray that someone would just turn to Jesus right now. Trust in His holy life. His perfect life. Trust in His substitutionary death. That they'd repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Lord, I pray for that. And I pray for Your church, Lord. I pray for us that we would... Father, have our eyes fixed on Jesus as our conquering King. Not be surprised at the fiery trials that come. Indeed, God, Jesus, you told us that the more we walk with you, the closer we walk with you, the more of this we'll experience. And we don't know when the end will come. So help us to be faithful in the meantime. To be encouraged. To be, Lord, just holding on to you as you promised to hold on to us. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.